is for me to be here this morning. And because I hate ending services with commercials, I'm going to do my commercial up front, okay? We have a table back there, because I'll completely forget to do this. We have a table back there, and on the table you'll find these. These are global prayer guides. VOM is active in more than 70 countries around the world, and this prayer guide will tell you, it will go through every country, it will give you kind of an overview of, of what the church looks like there, and then there's a section on what does it mean to be a Christian in Ethiopia, and what is the access to scripture in Ethiopia, and it has a brief thing about what VOM is doing there. These are free, please take them, take as many as you want, uh, but the number one question or number one request I get on the field, and I've sat with thousands of persecuted believers now, is will you pray for me? And I love being able to tell them that they have brothers and sisters in America who are praying for them. So this is a very powerful thing. I, I encourage you, take at least one. You can take more if you know someone who would want it. The other thing is back there is a, a magazine, a VOM magazine. This is kind of an introduction magazine that we do. It'll just tell you kind of the three big areas that we work in and a little bit about our organization. And then finally, there's a card. And if you'll fill it out, we'll send you a free book. My number one read of 2022 was Where Faith is Forbidden. This is written by Todd Nettleton, who's the host of VOM Radio. He's worked for 25 years with persecuted believers. And it is a 40-day journey with the persecuted church. And just fill out the card, tear it off. You can even mail it in if you want. But that's there for you. Everything that we do at Voice of the Martyrs, we give away. So there's, we're not people, we're not going to come hound you for money. We don't do that. We just want to tell you stories. Our big goal is to create fellowship between places like Covenant Life and their persecuted family around the world. You should know them. They are an example to me. They challenge me almost daily. Um, so let's do this. We're going to talk briefly. I, I promised Randy that I would not exegete a passage because I'm not a pastor. I'm a missionary, right? But I do want us to start this morning um, reading a passage of scripture in Acts chapter 4. And this passage, you know, do you guys ever read the Bible and think, I can't even imagine what's happening in this, in this passage. This is one of those rare passages where I've literally sat in meetings around the world just like this. So in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, you remember earlier in the chapter, Peter and John are before the council, they're threatened, all these things, bad things have happened, and then we get to verse 23. And I don't know if you guys do that here, this here, but would you guys stand in honor of reading God's word? Our brothers and sisters around the world, this is the most precious thing that they have. So let's read this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what their chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that, that you are the same yesterday and today. And Lord, I thank you for the, our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing difficult days. And Lord, I, I thank you for the way that you encourage their hearts. I thank you for, that you give them boldness, that you work signs and wonders around the world. And Father, that you continue to build your kingdom. Uh, as we look around, often we don't see it, but Lord, I pray you'd help us to lift up our eyes and look on the fields this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, have a seat. So, as, as Randy said, my name's Jonathan. I'm, one of, I'm part of the executive team for international ministries at the Voice of the Martyrs. Our international ministries team is about 140 folks, 40 nationalities based in about 50 countries around the world. And we do, we're a custom shop, right? There's AG World Missions, which is awesome. We work with them in many fields. And then there's this huge river of great mission work that's happening around the world. At VOM, we're a custom shop. We just do a couple of things, and we try to do them very, very well. The first is we want to respond to persecution. When our brothers and sisters suffer for the activity of their faith, we want to come alongside them and help replace what was lost. Really, our goal is to help the church stand in these very, very difficult fields. Because what are those who are persecuting them want them to do? They want to wipe them out. They want to see the church disappear. They want to see the church gone. So how can we, as, as the body of Christ in America, how can we help that church to stand? And that looks like all kinds of things. If a brother is martyred, we want to come alongside his family, make sure they have a place to live and food to eat and their children go to school. If they're in prison, we'll do the same thing while they're in prison. Uh, replace what was lost. Sometimes that's a church or a home. Um, whatever they need, we want to help them stand because we are servants of the persecuted church. We want to come alongside. What can we do to help? The second thing we do are Bibles. We at Voice of the Martyrs believe every Christian in the world deserves the right to have their own copy of God's Word, whether that's paper and ink or digital or audio or even in some context in the South Pacific, oral Bibles. So whatever they need, how do we get those Bibles to them? This is where we have a great partnership with the Assemblies of God Bible Alliance and the Fire Bible. We love the Fire Bible. We help distribute the Fire Bible in many places around the world. And that's what we do. If we can do it, we want to give Bibles to people. So last year, we did about 1.9 million Bibles around the world. Now, if you're a Gideon, that's not a very big number, right? But we're not putting them in hotel rooms. We're putting them on the world's most difficult and dangerous mission fields. And we do that really three ways. If we can go to the Bible Society and buy them and ship them somewhere, we'll do that. The largest Bible Society in the world is the Bible Society of India. If we can go to BSI and buy Bibles and ship them to Jammu Kashmir on the Pakistan border or Bihar up in northern India, which is called the Graveyard of Missionaries, we'll do it that way. If we can't do that, we'll smuggle. I consider Bible smuggling to be a core competency of our staff, and we <laughs> smuggle Bibles almost... Well, we're smuggling Bibles this week, right? Uh, we want to put the Word of God into those places. And this is sometimes a challenge for us because we think, oh, well, it's against the law. It's illegal. Famously in Iran, several years ago, when Ahmadinejad was the president, he famously said, there will be no Bibles in Iran. At Voice of the Martyrs, we had a meeting and decided we didn't care what he said. God told us to put the Word of God into people's hands, so we smuggle. If we can't smuggle, we do in-country printing which is, I always tell people the coolest stories we have, and I can't tell you any of them, right? Um, but I'll give you an idea, especially for younger folks. If you're kind of a, an adrenaline junkie and you want to do something wild, here, here's a, 
something like how this would work. We'll find a place, often in Central Asia or places like that or Middle East, and a group of young guys and gals will hump in, hike in a bunch of equipment, right? We'll take a, what we call print for all. It's a small printing press. And we'll take in food and paper and ink and all that stuff. And they hike it over the border, not going through immigration, not getting their passports stamped. Just hike it over, set it up in a, in a location that we found, and then they'll leave and then printers will come and they will work night and day. And they will just print. New Testaments, scripture portions, whatever they need. And when they're done, a truck will show up in the middle of the night and we'll load it all up and they'll take it to be distributed in that country, right? And then the young guys come back and they break it all down and they hump it out, they hike it out. Whatever it takes to put God's word into the hands of his people. In America, we're so complacent about the Bible because we have so many of them, right? It's on your phone, it's everywhere. Brothers and sisters, for many of our, our family around the world, that is an impossibility. So what can we do to put that word in their hands? The third thing is we'll come alongside frontline workers. How do we take, how do we help our indigenous brothers and sisters take the gospel further? Our focus is on what I affectionately call the bleeding edge of the gospel. Where are those most difficult and dangerous places? How do we help people get the gospel there? That's everything from bicycles and motorbikes to training, gospel literature. When I first came to VOM 12 years ago, I was over our work in India. It was carpets and drums because churches don't have buildings in rural India. So they'll take this carpet and they roll it out on the side of the road and everyone will come and they'll play a drum and sing and worship. And when it's over, the pastor will roll up the carpet, put it in his vehicle and bring it the next time they meet. Whatever they need. We believe that we will see the completion of the Great Commission in our generation. And if not ours, the next generation. We are close. The gospel continues to go forward. At Voice of the Martyrs, we're a non-denominational or interdenominational ministry which I always say means we work with everyone from Presbyterians to wild-eyed, pistol-waving Pentecostals, right? And my experience is that the Pentecostals are a lot more fun to work with. And, and because we have this broad reach, I, every morning when I open my computer and look at my email, I have emails from around the world. And some of them are tragic. Our brothers and sisters are suffering today. In India today, while you're here in India, can you imagine you're in church, and a group of Hindus come through the door and they drag Randy out into the street. And if his wife is here, they drag her out as well. They'll cut her hair to shame her and then they'll beat Randy with rods, beat him in the street. When they're done beating him, they will take him to jail and they will charge him with disturbing communal harmony. And those who beat him will go home and Randy will sit in jail. How do you get those guys out? Well, we have ways, right? So that's what we want to do. We want to see this gospel continue to go everywhere. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the big elevator pitch of who is Voice of the Martyrs. We, we love the Assemblies of God. The, our president was an Assemblies of God minister for 15 years uh, before coming to uh, VOM. So we have close ties, and it was great meeting Randy in Branson. I don't know how hoity-toity it was. It was, it was all right. It was great. I won't complain. But as, as I look at these emails from around the world every morning, both of tragedy and triumph, here's what I can tell you today. Here's what I want to come to Covenant Life and bear witness of. These are, without question, the most exciting days to be alive in the history of the church. There has never been a time in the history of the church like right now. We see movements among Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus around the world coming to Christ. And God is doing it through various ways and in 
in different situations, but God is building his church. And we have the privilege, you and I have the privilege of being alive right now. And we have the opportunity to join with God in what he's doing. And that doesn't mean that I'm here this morning to try to mobilize all of you to be missionaries. I'm not. I think you should be, but I'm not, okay? But I will tell you this. You currently live in the largest English-speaking mission field in the world, the United States. I meet brothers and sisters of ours around the world, and you know what they will often tell me? We're praying for America. And I'll ask them, what, what are you praying for America for? And they said, your country is lost, right? They just look at our country and say, your country is lost. We're praying. They're praying for you, your brothers and sisters around the world. So as I look at that mail, what I, I see really is a gospel wildfire. It's what I love to call it. It's a gospel wildfire. As we watch this, this kingdom of God continue to advance around the world, it's not slowing down at all. It may feel like it here, but it's not slowing down. So this morning, I want to talk to you about this gospel wildfire. Driving here last night or from uh, Bartlesville, I saw wildfires. So it is Oklahoma, right? And it's windy and dry, and we're going to have fires. So you guys are good Oklahomans. What do you need to have to have a fire? Well, first, you need an atmosphere, right? No matter what Star Wars says, things don't burn in outer space, right? you got to have an atmosphere. Then what do you have to have? You have to have some fuel, something to burn, right? you got to have fuel. And then what do you need? You need a spark. Something's got to start that fire. And then, being Oklahomans, I grew up in North, outside of Tulsa. If you really want your fire to go, gasoline, right? It's dangerous. You see the videos. But it's kind of fun just to chunk a big thing of gasoline on a big fire, right? If you haven't done that, students, don't ever do that. It's incredibly dangerous. So this morning, I want to talk about this gospel wildfire. And what are these elements? And how do we participate? This gospel wildfire, it is not unique to the nations of the earth. This could absolutely happen right here in Moore, Oklahoma. That could absolutely start right here at Covenant Life Assembly. You guys are the body of Christ, right? There's, you're not second-class citizens. You're nothing of that. God can use all of us. So let's talk through that. And I'm going to tell you some stories as we do. So the first thing we see is we said we need an atmosphere. Well, the atmosphere for this gospel wildfire is prayer. It's prayer. And, and I don't mean prayer like I grew up doing prayer, which is I prayed with the pastor on Sunday, and I might have said something at a meal if I was with other Christians, and then I just kind of went on with my life. But I'm talking about devoted prayer, significant amounts of prayer. I want to tell you two stories. One is about one of my best friends in the world. We'll call him John. John lives in Burma. Um, Burma is my favorite country on the planet. I've worked in 55 countries around the world, but Burma is home for me. I love Burma. And I've known John for 25 years, and John leads a wild-eyed bunch of church planters uh, up in northern Burma in a very difficult area. And I want to tell you about what he does. He recruits young people. Think 19 to 23. So if you're in that area, in that range, think about you doing this. He, he recruits these folks, and they equip them, and then they make a three-year commitment to go to a village where there are no Christians. So they help equip them by giving them a platform, something they can do, small engine repair, teaching English, whatever it may be. And then they go. He sends them out in twos because he said that's how Jesus did it, right? I don't need to read books about how to do that. Jesus sent them in twos. I'm going to send them in twos. So he sends them in twos to the village, and here's the plan. The first year, what do you do? The first year, all you do is establish your platform. You start your little small engine repair business. You start your little English school, whatever it's going to be. 
and you do not tell anyone that you're a Christian, you don't read your Bible in public, and you don't pray in public. You just establish your platform. Oh, and there's one other thing you have to do. You have to find the biggest troublemaker in the village, and you have to become his best friend, right? And, and that, that's job one. That's not something, hey, if you have time. No, that's, you're assigned. Go find that guy and become his best friend. Because the next year, you're going to start preaching, and if they come against you, they're going to have to go through him to get to you. Now, in all honesty, that only works about, like, half the time, right? These guys get beaten up a lot. Um, so in the second year, they begin to preach the gospel. And as happens everywhere when we preach the gospel, people respond. And you begin to see people come to Christ. And you see the birth of kind of a new church. And that's the second year. How do we establish a church in this village where there was never a church? Often there's opposition. There's often persecution. They just keep going, right? And then on the third year, you're going to train some leaders, and you're going to appoint them, and you're going to leave it to them, right? Like Paul, right? You're going to appoint leaders, and then you're going to go somewhere else. And I ask him, how in the world, brother? How do you get 19 to 23-year-olds to make a three-year commitment? How do you get people to stay in the field when they get beaten up the first time? How does that happen? I, don't, I can't even imagine that. And he said, oh, brother, the secret is Fridays. And I said, what in the world? What happens on Fridays? He said, every Friday, all the teams who are in a certain area, they will meet together and they will pray and fast on Friday. And that is where the power comes from. And to this day, almost every week, I would get an email from John saying, Friday's coming, brother. How can we pray for you? It's one of the most humbling emails I ever get. Brother, Friday's coming. How can we pray for you? But prayer is what is moving this kingdom of God forward. The second one is Koreans, right? South Koreans. Until very recently, South Koreans were one of the biggest players in the entire missions world, certainly. Now it's the Brazilians. You can't swing a dead cat in Africa without hitting a Brazilian missionary, right? They're everywhere. But the Koreans, you can always tell when the Koreans have been somewhere. And this has happened to me in, I can't even tell you how many countries, because I'll be in a meeting and I'll say, let's pray. And then everyone starts praying at the same time, out loud, right? And it's this beautiful thing where it starts out kind of calm, and then it just kind of grows and grows and gets louder and more intense and more intense. And it'll kind of crescendo, and then it will come back down, and then I'll be praying at the end. If, you've, if you experience that, the Koreans have been there because they've built their whole mission purpose on prayer. How do we establish prayer? And they are some of the boldest, bravest people I've ever met. So we have to have this atmosphere, and the atmosphere is prayer. I, I would beg you this morning, be a people of prayer. Make it a concerted thing. Get that global prayer guide and look for those opportunities and just go through one day and pick Djibouti. If for no other reason than it's fun to say, Djibouti is a small country in Africa, right? I'll tell you, it starts with a D, not a J. Uh, Djibouti, and, and just begin to pray for Djibouti. Begin to pray for your brothers and sisters there. There's not a country in the world that you don't have a brother or sister. Possible exception would be Antarctica, but it's penguins, right? So <laughs> begin to pray. And, and I would encourage you, I would challenge you, pick a country. I tell students this all the time. And if you have to go spin a globe, and just put your finger on it and pick one, pick a country, and begin to pray for that country every single day. Learn everything you can about that country. Pay attention to what the news is coming out of that country. Learn what you can about your brothers and sisters in that country and begin to pray for them. You never know what God will do. 
I was a junior in high school and I had to read To the Golden Shore, which is the biography of Adoniram Judson, one of the first American missionaries, went to Burma in 1812, uh, spent the next 38 years in Burma, translated the Bible. And I remember reading that book and thinking, wouldn't it be cool to go to Burma someday? And Burma always had this kind of a, um, I was always fascinated with Burma. And now I've been there close to 60 times. I've spent so much time in Burma. It's like going to Dallas. You know, you got a lot of friends there. You know where everything is kind of thing. But prayer, be a part of what God is doing. Be a part of the atmosphere of this gospel wildfire. The second thing you got to have is fuel. And what is the fuel? The fuel is the proclamation of the gospel. One of the things that we've gotten away from in our churches in America is this. We've gotten away from the gospel. We've so broadly defined the gospel that we can do everything and call it gospel, but we're not telling people about Jesus, right? At some point, you can build all the bridges you want to build, right? You can, you can do all the ministry that you want to do, but at some point, you got to step over that line and say, can I tell you about Jesus, right? We have to be able to do that. And yeah, brothers and sisters, I, I want to tell you two stories, and then hopefully you'll be challenged by them. Here's one of my favorite stories of all time. I hadn't been at VOM very long. I'm in North India. I'm with a thousand indigenous church planters, a thousand Indian church planters, and they were wild-eyed Pentecostals. It was one of the most fun meetings I've ever heard. I had no idea what was happening at any moment, right? I was just there. It was awesome. But one of the things I got to do is I got to interview some of these missionaries, these church planters. And I will never forget, I'm sitting outside in this courtyard, and this young man comes up to me, and he's pushing a bicycle. And he's got a big grin on his face. Now, his bicycle, it wasn't cool. It wasn't like a Cannondale mountain bike or something. It was like my grandfather's mountain bike, right? Mountain bike. They didn't have those when my grandfather was around. It was his bicycle, right? It had two handlebars. They were like this, right? It wasn't even a cool thing like this. It was here. He had two tires, and that was pretty much it. But he had made a couple of very important modifications. One was on the front, he had a loudspeaker. For those of us of a certain age, do you remember in high school when the loudspeaker was that gray loudspeaker made for volume, not for quality? Remember you all been that where you can't understand anything that's being said over it, but it's loud? He's got that on the front of his bike. On the back, he has a stack of gospel literature and a little lantern. And then on the crossbar, he's got a drum, like a snare drum without the snare. And he came walking up, and I, he had this big grin on his face. I said, brother, I can't wait to hear about your ministry. He said, oh. The Lord has given me an amazing ministry. I said, I'm sure he has. What do you do? He said, I ride my bicycle into a village where there are no Christians and there is no church. And I bang on my drum. And I said, you may be the coolest guy I've ever met in my life, right? And I said, well, when you bang on the drum, what happens? He said, well, people come out because there's someone banging on a drum in the middle of the road, right? And I said, so when the crowd comes out, what do you do? And he said, I preach the gospel. And I said, you are the coolest guy I've ever met, right? I said, when you preach the gospel, what happens? He said, brother, sometimes it's incredible. We see the Lord touch the hearts of people, and we see the birth of a church where there has never been a church before. I said, that's amazing, brother. I said, what about other times? He said, oh, they beat me. <laughs> and I said, brother, I am so sorry. What do you do when they beat you? He said, when I wake up, I ride to the next village. And as we sit here this morning... We know a 1,000 young men and women riding bicycles into villages in North India to preach the gospel. Guys, the, the fuel of this gospel wildfire is the proclamation of the gospel, right? 
probably the most challenging one to me was when someone tried to share the gospel with me in the field. <clears throat> so several years ago, I was in Arumshi, China. And Arumshi is as far into western China as you can go. If you go past it, you're in Central Asia. It's where the Uyghurs are. Are you guys heard of the Uyghurs? Uyghurs is this, minority, this Muslim minority group in western China that China has put into re-education camps. We would call them concentration camps. You also have some brothers and sisters in those camps as well. But we're in Arumshi, China, a partner and I, a, one of our staff members, and we're there to meet with in underground Uyghur pastors because there is a church there. I'm amazed that almost everywhere I go, there is a church there. It may be four people, but there's a church. So we spent the whole week, about four or five days, in Arumshi, China, and it was one of those... It was kind of like a Jason Bourne kind of thing, right, where we would have a meeting and they'd say, we'll pick you up at your hotel, and we would get in the car and we would drive for like 20 minutes around town, and we would end up two doors down from our hotel. And they said, oh, we just wanted to make sure we weren't being watched or followed. So we meet all those guys, and it's incredible. The, the passion that they have, their passion for the gospel, and to see Uyghurs come to Christ. Well, it came time to leave, and we were going to fly to Inner Mongolia, to Hohat, I have one of the best jobs in the world, guys. It's unbelievable where I get to go. But we're, we're going to go to Hohat. But we hadn't seen any other Westerners the whole time we were in Arumshi. We were definitely an anomaly. People stared at us. Uh, it was a very awkward time. And if I can help it, I don't want to lie to you, right? I'm, I'm telling you this morning, I'm doing my level best not to lie to you, right? But so when I fly in China, especially, but in several of these countries, I don't want to talk to anyone because I don't want to lie to you, right? I, because if you come up to me in the Arumshi airport and say, hey, what are you doing in, in Arumshi? I'm not going to say, oh, we were here meeting underground Uyghur pastors. That's kind of a non-starter for us, right? <clears throat> so I did what I always do. I got on the airplane. I sat in the aisle seat. I put in headphones, and I got out a book. I don't make eye contact with people walking down the aisle. That still kind of creeps me out even now in the States. When you get on a plane, everyone's just watching you walk by. I don't do that. I'm just staring at my book. And if someone's sitting on my row, I just stand up and I let them in and I don't talk to them. I don't say good morning. I don't say anything because I don't want to talk. So while I'm sitting there, a Chinese businessman, an older Chinese businessman, got in and sat by the, by the uh, window. He's in a coat and tie. looks very formal. And just before the plane was uh, going to close the door, a young Chinese lady got on the plane and she sat next to me. I still don't want to talk to her, right? But as soon as they close the door and they push the plane back, she does something crazy. She taps me on the shoulder. And I'm like, ugh. So I, I honestly, kind of embarrassing, I did that kind of ugly American thing. I'm like, ugh, you know, and I pulled my headphones out and I'm looking around for a bookmark. And I, took, and I turned to her, she's half my age, and she says, excuse me, sir, do you know Jesus? Well, holy cow, I'm in my early 50s when this happens. I grew up in Tulsa, and this was the very first time anyone outside of a church tried to share the gospel with me. I, had, I, I never, until that moment, had had someone come and try to share the gospel. I thank God for the local church because I would be a card-carrying pagan if it weren't for the, the local church. But now I have this kind of existential crisis, right? What are you going to say? I don't want to talk to her. I don't know who she is. I don't know what's happening. But I also know I'm about to order a ginger ale. And I don't think you could deny Christ and order a ginger ale. I think even Peter, when we got to heaven, would say, come on, right? <laughs> so I, I, I said, yes, ma'am, I know Jesus. And she said, so you're a Christian? 
And I said, yes, ma'am. I, I talked to her like she's my mother this whole time. She's half my age. Yes, ma'am, I, I know Jesus. Or I'm a Christian. And she said, are you a good Christian? No guile. She wasn't like attacking me. She's just asking the question. She said, are you a good Christian? Well, how in the world? How do you answer that question, right? I mean, this afternoon when I get back to the hotel after being with you guys and probably having a nice lunch, I may be one of the best Christians in America, but this is Thursday in a rumshi China, right? And I've been sneaking around a rumshi China for four days. I said, yes, ma'am, I think I'm a good Christian. And she said, well, do you read your Bible every day? And I said, yes, ma'am, I read my Bible every day. She said, do you pray every day? Yes, ma'am, I pray every day. She said, do you tell people about Jesus every day? Oh, no, ma'am, not every day. And she said, I will pray for you. And I said, thank you. I would really appreciate that. But I really thought it was like an American conversation, right? When someone says, I'll pray for you, the conversation's over, and then they leave, right? Not her. We're still rolling down the tarmac. We're not even off the ground. And she puts her hand on my shoulder, and she prays for me. And I will never forget, she prayed that I would have boldness and the courage of my convictions, right? And the plane took off. So now we're flying, and I'm talking to her. We're having, you know, now I've got a friend, so now we're going to talk. <laughs> and she's telling me that she's learning English from a bilingual Bible. Her English is already better than mine. I tell people that I'm almost fluent in English. You know, I can get around town, order a sandwich, those kinds of things. She's telling me about her favorite worship music, which is like Hillsong or Be whatever people were listening, 25-year-olds are listening to. And then she pauses, and she says, you should pray. I'm going to talk to him about Jesus. Okay, so I'm no threat to her at all, right? I don't look even a little bit Chinese, do I? Not at all. I'm an aggressively built older white guy, right? That guy looks like the poster child of the Chinese Communist Party, right? And what she's about to do is incredibly dangerous because she could go to prison if this goes poorly. And you know what she did? She reached over, tapped him on the shoulder, right? And then she talks to him for about 10 or 15 minutes, and she turns back, and she tells him his name, and she said, you should pray for him. I told him about Jesus, but he doesn't believe. And we, we prayed for him, and then we land in Hohat, and when we get off the plane, I find out her husband's on the same flight with us. He's across the aisle, up one row. Can you guess what seat? Middle seat. And he told me, he said, we fly every week for our business, and we, we have made a commitment to God that we will share the gospel with everyone we sit by on an airplane. Now... When you watch what's happening in China right now to our brothers and sisters, it's terrible. It's a very difficult time for the Chinese church. But I'm not worried about the Chinese church because a 25-year-old will tap a guy who definitely does not want to talk to her and ask him that question. So here's the thing. George Barna says that only 2% of Christians will ever share their faith. 2% of American Christians will ever share their faith. I pray that's not right. But I will tell you this, if you find yourself in that 98% who will never even one time share the gospel, I want you to know as your brother this morning, you are completely out of step with the global church. The global church is an evangelistic church. The global church doesn't come and, and just get a warm fuzzy and then hear a great message from a pastor and then go out there the rest of their week like God doesn't exist. They are an evangelistic church. So I want to challenge you this morning. I'm an old guy, so I can say this. I'm going to double dog dare you to do something. I grew up in the church. I've been to every evangelism course you can do, evangelism explosion, continuing witness training, and I don't know what you guys have, but I've, I've been through all of that. And I think my friend on the airplane has the best evangelism strategy I have ever seen. She did not try to build a bridge to me. 
She did not try to figure out something we had in common so we could build a relationship. No. She jumped in the deep end and she said, excuse me, sir, do you know Jesus? So here's what I dare you to do this week. And if you do it, please tell Randy because I would love to hear. One time this week, students, older adults, all of us, one time this week, walk up to a stranger and say, excuse me, do you know Jesus? You have no idea what may come out of that conversation. No idea. One thing I can promise you will not happen to you in Moore, Oklahoma. You will not be beaten with rods in the street. Right? What do you have to fear? Nothing. Right? Our whole culture has lost their mind. People are, have all kinds of crazy ideas and promote all kinds of things. The idea that Christians would be ashamed to talk about Jesus in these days in America is beyond my ability to even imagine. One time this week, I dare you. Do it this afternoon. Do it while you're still thinking about it. As you go to lunch, just ask the way, excuse me, do you know Jesus? And see what might happen. The proclamation, this proclamation is the fuel of the gospel wildfire. And like I said, that can happen right here in Moore, Oklahoma. It can start right here in Covenant Assembly, Covenant Life Assembly. Third thing, so we've got the atmosphere. The atmosphere is what? Prayer, right? And then we got the fuel. The fuel is what? Gospel, the gospel proclamation. I should say that more clearly. It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's not just that you know the gospel. It's that you're going to proclaim it. Third, you need a spark. The spark is the power of the Holy Spirit around the world. I, I told you guys that we work with everyone from Presbyterians to wild-eyed, pistol-waving Pentecostals. What I tell everyone who's not a Pentecostal that we work with is, hey, I just want you to know the global church is Pentecostal. It's absolutely true. The global church is Pentecostal. Because when I go to the bleeding edges of the gospel advance in the nations, you know who I find? Pentecostals. I don't find Presbyterians there. I find Pentecostals there. And God loves to show up, right? And I, I do want to say this. When we talk about, about the power of God and how God works in that way, he does it as a platform for that proclamation. He doesn't do it as a way to be famous, right? And I want to tell you a couple of stories. I, I told Randy I was so excited to be in an AG church this morning because I can tell these stories. I can't tell these at some of the places I go. People get very nervous, and the pastor's like doing this in the back. But it is, it is the spark that starts this thing. So I'll tell you two stories. God is moving like never before. Signs and wonders, dreams and visions, right? We see signs and wonders in places like India. I'm going to tell you a story from India, and I just want you to know for Hindus, in Hinduism, power is everything. Some people say there are 300 million gods in India, right? I don't do math in public, but if it's half that, that's a lot of gods, right? If it's half that again, still a lot of gods. There are a lot of gods. And if I come and just give you an argument, I have a dear friend in North India who says you will never... God has to show up, right? Because as a Hindu, I have a shelf of idols. And if you come and tell me about this Jesus, and he's just another God, I just put a cross on my shelf, and now I have another God I have to fear. If I'm going to follow Jesus, he has to be more powerful than those gods. And, those God, and Jesus has no problem showing up in those fields, right? I've seen, I've heard countless stories now of the power of God. One of my favorites, North India. Again, I spent a lot of time in India in my early days at VOM. North India, we're meeting with some, some pastors uh, in a very difficult area. And we just wanted to get together and hear their stories. Brothers, just tell us. There's about 20 people in the room. Just tell us what's happening in your churches. And we heard... 
As soon as we said, what do you guys have to tell us? One man stood up. I called him short round because he was about that tall and about that big around. And he had on a very bright sweater. He was dressed like a worship pastor. He really was. I mean, he was all kind of blinged out, you know. And he said, I was a demoniac. There's a word we don't hear very often, right? I was a demoniac. I was a very evil and wicked man. I lived in the forest, and I would attack people and rob people, and I would beat people up. I was a very evil and wicked man. He said, and then one day the pastor of the church, the local church, came walking down the road, and I came screaming out of the forest to attack him. And he said, the pastor turned and rebuked me. Another word we don't hear very often. Turned and rebuked me. And he said, I woke up on my back in the middle of the road in my right mind. Right? And he said, and now I sing for Jesus. I don't know if any of you have been to India, but Indian music is an acquired taste, right? I mean, I don't know if there's a key. There may be 15 of them, and they're all going at the same time. And he begins to sing. (laughs) And to my shame, I was kind of embarrassed for him because it it wasn't good, right? I mean, I wasn't like, wow, you should come to my church, right? (laughs) So I put my head down, and when I looked up, every pastor in the room had their phone out, and they were recording him, right? I usually am the least spiritual guy in the room. And I realize what they're doing is they don't care about how he's singing. What they're celebrating is what God has done, right? God is doing amazing things. In the same meeting, we get to the end of the day. It's almost time to go. We've heard from almost everyone. But there's a pastor sitting in the back of the room, and he hasn't said anything all day. And uh, one of the other pastors, they began to talk to him. We didn't know what they were saying. But they were encouraging him to tell his story. So finally, at much prompting, he got up and told us his story. He said, I pastored a small church in a village. We were, we were the only church in the village, and there was a lot of opposition to us. We would meet on Sunday morning, and people would throw rocks on our roof. They have metal roofs. Throw rocks on the roof. Or they would set up speakers outside and play loud music while we were trying to worship. He said, and then one day, a young lady in our church passed away. She had gotten a fever, and she died, which is how most people in India die. They don't know. They're not like us. They don't have WebMD, so you just get a fever and die, right? He said, so on Sunday morning, we're gathered as a church, and we're trying to encourage the family and comfort the family. And while we're doing that, a group of Hindus had gone to the hospital and stolen the body, taken the body from the hospital. He said, and they came to our church, and they burst into the service And they were yelling and and shouting and tearing up Bibles and pushing people around. And the man who was holding her body brought her up and dropped her on the stage. And he looked at me and he said, what will your God do? Right? And I said, holy cow. I said, well, what did you do? He said, we didn't know what to do. We're not Pentecostal. That's what he told me. I think he's Pentecostal now. He goes, we didn't know what to do. He said, so we just began to pray. And he said, so... The Hindus are there. More Hindus are coming. This is the definition of a power encounter, right? Hindus are pouring into the church. There's chaos. And the small church is gathered around this young lady who's passed away. And he said, I'll never forget this. After 45 minutes, her eyes began to flutter. Now, what's amazing about that is not to me that her eyes began to flutter, but that a church in the middle of chaos prayed over a dead body for 45 minutes. What would you do? Right? I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist. We just said, bless her Lord, and gone got lunch, right? I mean, so 45 minutes, they're praying over a dead body. Her eyes began to flutter. At an hour, she sat up on the stage, right? 
And I, I sat there and I said, holy cow. I said, what did you do? He said, I preached the gospel, right? And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, we average about 800 people now in our church, right? What did God do? So I'm, I'm skeptical by nature. So I went back to this same village about six months later, and I interviewed the girl, and I interviewed her mother, and I interviewed several of the, past, the church staff or church members that were there. I wasn't there, but I would tell you I absolutely believe God raised that girl from the dead as a way to put his church in that village. That church is now there. So that's the thing. I mean, I, I thought about that, that man for years, about if that were me, if I saw a girl raised from the dead in my service and now I'm running 800, I would have a private jet. Right? I'd be flying all over the place telling that story. He wasn't even going to tell us that story. And I, I tell you that just this, that signs and wonders and the miracles that we see are a platform for the gospel, not something to celebrate because it's a miracle. It's a platform for the gospel. But this spark, we hear this all over the world. Among Muslims, we hear about dreams and visions. And, yeah, it's become so common that our friends who work in Indonesia now say if they meet a Muslim for the first time, they will often ask him, have you had any strange dreams lately? We see this in Iran and different places around the world. And I was in Lebanon, this is just a couple of years ago, and I met a Saudi Arabian believer. So there aren't a lot of Saudi Arabian believers, but it's beginning to grow. God is doing some incredible things in Saudi Arabia. And I got to meet this brother. He's living in a refugee camp in Beirut, Lebanon. And I remember he had two young children, and I said, where can we have lunch? His kids had never had a cheeseburger. Well, I'm an aggressively built white guy. I love cheeseburgers, right? So, so we found a restaurant that had cheeseburgers, and he and his wife and his kids came. And I said, brother, just tell me your story. And his story was incredible. He said, I, I lived in Saudi Arabia, southern Saudi Arabia, and I had a normal life. I had a job and two cars, and my kids went to school, and we had a nice home, and... and uh, Life was, was good for us. He said, and then one night I had a dream. And in this dream, a man in white came to me, and he told me his name was Isa, Jesus. He told me his name was Jesus. And he told me to find a church or find Christians and learn more about him. He goes, and then I woke up. And he said, for days, I could not get that dream out of my mind. Now, I always tell people when I tell these stories, just because a Muslim has a dream does not make them Christian. He's not a Christian. He's just had, God has opened his heart, as the New Testament would say, to hear the gospel. So he said the problem was there was no church and there were no Christians in my town. He said, but I heard that there were Christians in Yemen. So I snuck across the border into Yemen to try to find out who is this Isa. Tell me about him. He said, and I found a church in Yemen, but when they knew I was Saudi, they wouldn't talk to me. So I went home. And then he made what, what you and I would probably think is a huge mistake. He began to talk to his friends and his families about this dream, about a man named Isa, who said he was the son of God. And long story short, it took him an hour to tell me the story. Long story short, everything went sideways for him and his family. He lost his job. His mom and dad began to threaten he and his wife and their children, threatening to take their children away from them because they were going to raise them as infidels. All of these things... And in the middle of the night, they took everything they could, and they fled. And they ended up in Beirut, Lebanon. At this point, they're still not Christians, right? He still doesn't know about Isa. He still hasn't found anyone to tell him about Isa. But they get to Lebanon, Beirut, and guess what they find? They find a church. 
and he learns about Isa, and now they're, they're incredible witnesses for the kingdom uh, in these refugee camps. And I had to ask him, at the end of his story, I said, Brother, I just have to know, that morning when you woke up from that dream, if you knew it would literally cost you everything to follow Jesus, would you do it again? And he looked at me, and I will never forget, he looked at me with a big smile on his face. He said, Brother, I would do it in a moment. Have you seen Jesus? He's beautiful. I've talked to thousands of people. I've never had anyone say that to me. Have you seen Jesus? He's beautiful. God is on the move. People ask me sometimes, why does God use dreams and visions with Muslims? Because we're all afraid of them, right? We're all terrified that they're going to kill us. Another friend who works with them says, God's tired of waiting on us. God's going to win them, and he's going to use us if we're willing to do it. So I just want to encourage you this morning yeah, pray for signs and wonders and pray for healing and pray for all those things. But don't pray for them as an end in themselves. They are not the end. They are the means. They are the means to share the gospel. And I just want to challenge you this morning. Be a part of this gospel wildfire. So we have prayer as the, the atmosphere. We have the fuel as the proclamation of the gospel. The spark is the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you really want the fire to go, you need a tub of gasoline, right? A tub of gasoline is persecution. We're seeing persecution around the world. Um, at VOM, uh, just to give an example, at VOM last year in Africa alone, we spent $16 million responding to persecution. Brothers and sisters are being persecuted every week, every day. It's a common thing uh, around the world. But I want you to know this. What we see in these fields is when persecution comes, we see open doors for the gospel. We see everywhere that we see persecution, we see the church growing. Or maybe it's the other way. Everywhere that we see the church growing, we see persecution. One, one issue about where is the, why isn't the American church experiencing persecution? Because we're not doing anything. People ask me that all the time. Do you think persecution is coming to America? It's already here, right? It's just that most of us, most churches are doing nothing that would be necessary to persecute. Unless we've aligned ourselves so close politically that it's a political thing. But no, we should, if we're going to be persecuted, if I want to be persecuted, I want to be persecuted for being a Christian, not for being an American or a Republican or something like that. It opens doors for the gospel. And I, I challenge you guys, for example, in America, do you think if, you're, if the students, you guys on that row, if you went to the mall, are there still malls in war? Okay. If you went to the mall with a drum and began banging on the street out on the sidewalk to preach the gospel, you think the authorities would show up? Absolutely, without question, right? But if you just sit there on your row and just go to youth group and those kinds of things, is, are the authorities going to show up? No, they'll leave you completely alone because you're no threat. The devil feels the same way. If you're no threat to him, why can he even bother you? He can just lull you to sleep with all the stuff you've got. So I just want to encourage you, pray for your brothers and sisters around the world. Our brothers and sisters are suffering daily. We have the privilege, we have the obligation to pray for them, to do what we can to stop, not to stop the persecution, but to come alongside them uh, in the midst of that. And then really what we can learn from them, and that's where I think the, the trick comes, we can pray for them and we can learn about them. One thing they've never asked me for is pity. They're not looking for you to pity them, right? They're looking for you to pray for them, okay? And here's what we can do. We can learn a lot from our brothers and sisters. 
What we do in our magazine every single month is we're going to tell you stories about persecuted Christians around the world. Not so you'll feel sorry for them, but so you'll look at them and say, holy cow, that's what it means to be a Christian. Look what they were willing to do. Look at their willingness, their willingness to forgive those who persecute them. Their willingness to try to evangelize those who are persecuting them. That's what the example is. That's what it means to be a part of this gospel wildfire that is global. And if nothing else, as you leave today, please know you are part of a global body. You're not a small church. You're not a big church. You're part of a global body which is massive and looks nothing like this place, right? It's the whole world in front of us. And you have brothers and sisters in all those places. So I'd like to close this morning. I want to lead us in a prayer that the church has been praying for hundreds of years when we think about the nations. So pray with me. Oh God, you have created of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far away and to those who are near. Father, grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord.